Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. When it comes to modernization, China can do two things at the same time. So says Bert Schneider, professor at the University of the Arts in Bern, Switzerland, who has studied China for decades. In a new book about China, Professor Schneider suggests that Westerners think outside the box of Western centralism if they want to understand China. What exactly does he mean by China doing two things at the same time? Here's our conversation. Many people in the West, including those in the media, in the elites, or uh, particularly in the pol- in the political circles, um, believe or they say they believe that China, under the Communist Party of China's rule, is autocratic. Uh, we often hear the buzzwords such as one-party state, no human rights in Xinjiang. Um, you know that they manipulate viruses in their labs as a potential biological weapon, and so on and so forth. Um, despite the negativity, what do you think of this? the Communist Party of China's role in China's pursuit towards modernization so far and potentially in the future? Moi, je pense, moi, je pense que le grand mérite du Parti communiste, c'est la libération... I believe the great achievement of the Communist Party of China, or CPC, is first and foremost anti-colonial liberation. Secondly, China has achieved exceptional development gains of historic significance by lifting the country out of poverty and even enjoying a certain level of affluence. I think only the CPC could have accomplished this. If not for the CPC, perhaps there would have been a division among different parties in China, but it would have led to a dead end. I think eradicating poverty is indeed a great exceptional accomplishment of historical proportions. Why do you think the Communist Party of China is able to achieve what you just said, you know, the liberation of China, the development? What about the Communist Party of China that enables it to play such a huge role? Because the CPC is very close to the people. During the war, during anti-colonial liberation, it was very close to the people, and it still is now. We call it the CPC's mass line, whereby the party and the people have a close-knit relationship. The CPC always listens to people's concerns, responds to their needs by taking action, and communicates in a way that is easily understandable. I believe that compared to Western capitalist parties or even social democratic parties, the CPC is much closer to the people. This is exceptional. Some people would say, look, you say that the Communist Party of China is very close to the people and it stays close to the people. But, uh, for instance, the, the government of China or the leader of China is not voted out by popular vote. How how can these two be combined? How can China achieve the objective of being close to the people, right, serve their needs, feel their pulses and still 
um, without adopting the one person one vote model of the West. Yes, but I think that the vote, in the sense of occidental I think the Western voting system is superficial. Elections are held only once every four years. It lacks depth, whatever the result is. Whereas the Chinese system, which I am familiar with, has democratic institutions and people's congresses at different levels. So not only is the party close to the people, but it also blends with the population. It is an advantage compared to elections every four years as we have in Western countries. I told a friend of mine three weeks ago at a conference that I even think there's more democracy in China than in Western countries. Wow, that is, you know, that is really, um, a lot of people would say that's astonishing that you would say in China there's more democracy than in a Western country. Um, would you want to say a little bit more about that? Because, you know, this is toppling for a lot of people in the West, in, in the West, thinking, how come, how come, you know, when they talk about China is autocratic, it's undemocratic, and yet you think that there is more democracy in China than in many Western countries. If someone asked me this question on the street, I would say, look, the U.S. government, for example, does not represent the people. It is instead an oligarchy that is remote from the people. Similarly, the Macron government in France does not represent the people at all, as it's controlled by a minority and doesn't represent the interests of the majority. In Germany, opinion polls often show that the majority of people support peace, yet the government supports Ukraine by providing weapons against Russia. I think that if you tell the people your government here in the West is not really a government for the people, by the people. They will agree and say it's true. I'm not happy with my government because it didn't help me during the pandemic, etc. And I say that if you agree with that, you really have to be clear-eyed about what's happening in China. China has vowed to follow a uh, unique Chinese path to modernization. Uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping said in the 20th National Congress report last October that uh, we have put forward 
the Chinese dream of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and proposed promoting national rejuvenation through a Chinese path to modernization. So how do you understand, Professor Schneider, how do you understand this notion and what are the implications for the world, the Chinese path to modernization? C'est vraiment la, 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 cette notion de modernisation que je it is the very notion of modernization that I look into in my book. I explain that China can always do two things at the same time, while Westerners can only focus on one thing. The Chinese have adopted Western modernization and capitalism, but they have not been Westernized. They have not changed everything in favor of capitalism and have remained true to themselves. Eux-mêmes. Comment? Parce qu'ils ont une grande tradition, une grande culture. How? Because of its great traditions and great culture, dating back 5,000 years, from which China can benefit because it can make up a hybrid model. Faire un propre chemin de modernisation. C'est une modernisation hybride, on pourrait dire. Des skills hybrid because it benefits from the capabilities of the West, but it also follows its own path. This mixture of its own culture with a made-in-the-West modernization provides vitality, and this vitality is a characteristic of China, which is strong thanks to this combination of culture and economy, so I think it is really a great strength. What are the implications for the world? What would it mean for people in Switzerland, in the United States, in Germany, in Africa, in Latin America? I think that the people of the South, or the sous-developed I think that people in the South, in developing countries, are tired of U.S. and European imperialism and colonialism, and they see an alternative path to development in which the state plays a large role, and the economy can develop, but not in the way it does in the West, and the people can benefit from it. I think Africa, Latin America, and Asian countries look to China because there is a new path of development that offers a guarantee. The guarantee is that China has developed like no other country. It has become a great power. La garantie, la garantie, c'est que on peut observer que la Chine s'est développée comme pas d'autres pays. Elle est elle a I think the Chinese dream is really something different from the American dream, because the American dream was the dream of a few individuals. In contrast, the Chinese dream is the dream of the entire people. Le rêve américain, c'était le rêve de quelques individus, tandis que Le rêve chinois, c'est le rêve de tout le peuple. Et c'est pour cela que c'est très... 
That is why it is very attractive to African countries and countries in the global south. That's really something else. Many thanks to Professor Baird Schneider. When we come back, how serious is the situation of internally displaced people and refugees in Iraq 20 years after the U.S. invasion? I talked to the representative of the U.N. refugee agency in the country. Stay tuned. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Decades of conflict and violence in Iraq have led to major crises concerning refugees and internally displaced people. Today, Iraq is still plagued by instability while economic growth remains slow and violence still plagues some parts of the country. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the population of concern, which includes internally displaced persons, refugees and returnees, stood at over 6 million last December. How big is the problem? Are they being sufficiently fed and clad? What's the international community doing to alleviate their suffering? I talked to Jean-Nicolas Berze, representative of the UN Refugee Agency in Iraq. The humanitarian situation in Iraq seems to be very complex with internally displaced people, persons, otherwise known as IDP, Iraqi refugees abroad and returnees, as well as foreign refugees, uh, all of whom, as I said, are called population of concern. Can you help us understand which these specific groups are? And 20 years after the last major war in the country, what are their situation at this particular moment? As you have mentioned, uh, Iraq has been plagued by many conflict and many uh, displacement, forced displacement of people fleeing violence, their house being destroyed, family members being killed, uh, unfortunately women, children may be subjected to sexual violence and so on and so forth. The last wave of displacement is actually related to Daesh, to this uh, Islamic extremist group which uh, took from Mosul in the western part of the country, uh, took large part of the ter territory between 2013 and 2017. It had displaced, as you see, more than 6 million uh, Iraqi. Uh, but Daesh, this extremist group, was defeated with the coalition forces and the Iraqi forces in 2017. So since then, we have seen a gradual return of those populations, those who were displaced by this violence triggered by Daesh, and triggered by the coalition uh, response of defeating uh, Daesh. Okay. Five million have returned home already, but you have still one million who are living still today uh, uh, in displacement situation. On top of that, as you have really mentioned, it's important to remember that Iraq and the Kurdistan region of Iraq has received almost 300,000 Syrian and other refugees because 
Iraq is geographically uh, located in a place which is really troubled. You have Syria on the west, you have Iran on the east, you have Turkey on the northwest. And so you have population which may have been subjected to violence, conflict, discrimination, persecution, who found Aizaloum in Iraq, despite the fact, as you mentioned, that Iraq is unstable, does not have such a strong economy, even if it's an oil producing uh, country, and is getting yeah. more and more fiscal space to be able to respond to the needs of all those displaced populations. So you talk about fiscal difficulty, right? Uh, give us an idea of exactly how big is that a burden and how much difficulty is that putting on the uh, on the local and the central governments on top of what they're experiencing as a slow economic you know, uh, recovery? So you mentioned the Iran-Iraq war, there was the fall of the Saddam regime, then the US invasion, then Daesh. So you can well imagine that the country has really poor infrastructure. Uh, they need to rebuild road, uh, hospital, schools, which have been destroyed or not been maintained. And on top of that, you have those displaced population. Uh, the country is made of 41 million uh, uh, Iraqi. If you have 6 million, 5 million who are returned home, 1 million in displacement, another 300,000 Syrian refugees, it's a lot uh, to take care of. That's why the United Nations and all the humanitarian partners and UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, have been uh, giving assistance to those people, shelter, food, uh, bringing back children to school, cash assistance for people not to fall under the poverty line. And now we are handing over this response to the authorities, because with the price of oil, the Iraqi authorities have regained fiscal space and have a much more balanced budget and therefore can do the response themselves. So over the past five years, or to your knowledge, if you can, over the past decade, how has the situation evolved? You were talking about the rise and fall of the debt but also the picking up of oil revenue from for the Iraqi administration. So how has the refugee situation developed over the past few years and how has the challenge for humanitarian agencies such as yours um, been able to carry out your work in that situation? So at the fall of Daesh in 2017, you had nine out of the 18 governorates of Iraq which were engulfed in violence, displacement, destruction. We had estimated at that point there were 11 million people in need of our assistance. 11 million people is 25% of the population. It's absolutely phenomenal. But with uh, the progressive return to stability, um, security, people have returned home, tried to resume their life, and we have helped them to actually do that, rebuilding their shelter, trying to find livelihood opportunities for them, making sure children go to school or get vaccinated. So now we are really in a phase where the humanitarian assistance is less important than helping the government to develop the country from a, from a development point of view, from a long-term point of view, re-establishing public services, including people in public social policies, but still taking care of extremely vulnerable people, women who have lost their husband, who are with children on their own, Syrian refugees who are considered as foreigners on the territory. It's not easy for those people to actually get their bread and butter. So it seems like uh, an enormous undertaking. And how would you describe 
the process, how uh, smooth or how challenging it is. You're dealing with a volatile uh, country that is uh, still not gained its full um, independence, I would say, or sovereignty, uh, and the infrastructure that have been destroyed that is, you know, that takes years and money to build. So how is the process of giving that kind of development opportunity back to the country of Iraq? As you said, it's a very volatile situation, political instability, economic downturn due to the fact of COVID and the, the global economic crisis. Uh, also, remnant of uh, uh, Daesh groups, sleeping cells, who sometimes commit uh, atrocities. So it's a it's a very complex uh, operational environment. Having said that, if you turn around in the region and beyond, Iraq has the prospect to make it to make it through, to go through this humanitarian response and advance a, a human rights, a rule of law, a development agenda bordered with Syria, which is still in, up in flame. Now we have the earthquake in Turkey and northwest uh, Syria, which has destroyed uh, livelihood and houses and, and killed so many people. Up north, you have Ukraine. Down south, you have Tigray and Ethiopia. Uh, you still have Afghanistan. You still have the, the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. So compared to those other crises throughout the world, and I'm not mentioning all the crisis in Africa, for example, uh, Iraq is on the path of recovery. It's a difficult process. It's a long process, but it's one where we can really see the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel and say we will be able to give hope, to give uh, a possibility for people to resume a normal life in Iraq, continuing hosting Syrian refugees. Mm. Uh, but there is a prospect to get out of a humanitarian crisis, and that's very rare. That does not happen often. What are the factors behind this, this possibility or this light of hope that I just mentioned? Uh, Iraq has regained a lot of fiscal space. They make approximately 10 to $12 billion per month of all revenues. It's a lot of money that you can inject into your economy, that you can uh, use to build hospitals, to rebuild roads, to, to build factories, and so on and so forth. So it's a unique situation. Many uh, humanitarian crimes in countries which do not have that kind of financial resources. The mm -hmm. Iraqi people are extremely well-educated, and therefore they can rebuild their countries by themselves. You talk about Iraqis trying to bring control of their country or uh, their sovereignty in their country into their own hands. In terms of that, uh, do you see that is the reality already or there are still hurdles to overcome? And in terms of cooperating with the Iraqis in rebuilding their country, is there a challenge? Are there hurdles for you? Like anywhere in the, in the world, uh, money is not sufficient. It's also political will. It's its political will to target the most vulnerable in societies, those who may have been discriminated, those who may have been stigmatized. We are speaking here, for example, about women on their own with children. There is social cultural norm, which means that women have more difficulties having access to job, having a place in, in society. We're speaking about persons with disabilities. We may be speaking about ethnic minorities, uh, linguistic minorities, and so on and so forth. So the money is not sufficient, and that's why the United Nations is working with the authorities to make sure that in advancing the sustainable development goals, you know, the, 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 the goal for right. all the nation to really give uh, a better living condition, better opportunities to all their population without discrimination, 
This is the challenge now of working with the authorities, getting this political will so that they do the right thing with this huge amount of money that they have, because it's a opportunity. Is there this political will? And on top of the political will, is there the capacity, the, the government capability to do all of these things that are, that are urgently, as you mentioned, urgently needed? I believe, or, or, or rather I hope, that there is a political will. I hope that the decision makers uh, will look at their population, at those who are the most vulnerable, and will decide to do the right thing. But it's complicated because it's a mosaic of tribes, it's a mosaic of religion. You have a Sunni minority with a Shia majority, the, Shia, the government is it mainly composed of Shia uh, representatives. You have the Kurds in the north, uh, which are in a kind of a semi-autonomous uh, region, the Kurdistan region of Iran. So it's complicated. Uh, but I, I think that uh, everybody sees the writing on the wall. If they don't use this opportunity now, they may go back to the decades of violence that you were mentioning before. And that nobody wants. In terms of efforts on the part of the international community, uh, where do you feel uh, must be stepped up? Um, the contribution or the attention or, I don't know, resources? What, what would you say on this part? I like the fact that you mentioned attention. I think we need to keep Iraq on the radar screen of the international community of big countries such as China to make sure that we help them follow this path towards recovery, that we support them with technical advice. Uh, China is very key here in this country for reconstruction. They have re helped with schools in the countries. Education is important for China and for Iraq. So it's important that we keep this attention because the uh, world leaders are constantly shifting their priorities. One day it's Ukraine, the other day it's Afghanistan. And we tend to forget those protracted crises like Iraq which get less attention, less media attention. And that's why we need uh, really uh, to further uh, the support that we give, technical support, political support uh, to the Iraqi authorities and the Kurdish authorities to do the right thing. Thank you very much, Jean-Nicolas Berzer, representative of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, joining us from Baghdad, Iraq. We'll keep a close eye on the development of the situation. Thank you once again. Jean-Nicolas Berzer, representative of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Iraq. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lucien. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lucien in Beijing. You've got the point.